trial of Ghislaine Maxwell, daughter of the late and disgraced Robert Maxwell, has opened today in federal court in New York. She faces eight decades in jail on sex trafficking and perjury charges. So if she's convicted, she won't be out until she's 139. Miss Maxwell was the longtime companion of Jeffrey Epstein, the pedophile billionaire. No one seems to know quite how the late Mr. Epstein made all that money, but he owned a private island and a private plane to fly him there, known as the Lolita Express. The flight manifests for the Lolita Express contain all kinds of interesting names. Bill Richardson, the former governor of New Mexico, former Senator George Mitchell. He was the American end of the Irish peace process a generation back. Oh, and William Jefferson Clinton, the 42nd president of the United States. Yet none of these powerful and influential figures are the subject of inquiries by either the FBI or the court eunuchs of the pathetic American media. Instead, the only people caught in the crosshairs are some English gal and some fella who's uh, seventh, oh, no, seventh, eighth, no, wait, ninth, ninth in line to a distant foreign throne. Prince Andrew, Duke of York, whom most Americans couldn't have picked out of a police lineup until he started turning up in the tabloids. Gee, it's almost as if... The U.S. Department of Justice is using these two British subjects as some sort of distraction for all the American big shots they're giving a pass to. Now, I should say I have no use either for Miss Maxwell. I've never met a member of the Maxwell family I wasn't creeped out by, or for His Royal Highness, a buffoon who thinks he's a genius. But I am interested in due process and equality before the law, both of which are dying concepts in America's so-called justice system. Ghislaine Maxwell, for example, has filed multiple motions in which she asserts that for a year and a half of solitary confinement, her jailers have woken her up every couple of hours or even every 15 minutes to check that she hasn't killed herself. You'll recall that Mr. Epstein the most high-value prisoner in the custody of the U.S. Bureau of Prisons, quote-unquote, committed suicide while both his guards were sleeping and the security cameras were malfunctioning. He had been on so-called suicide watch, but they'd quietly taken him off suicide watch because they thought his suicidalness had all cleared up. So we'll never see him on the witness stand. As for Miss Maxwell, in a functioning judicial system, it might be thought prejudicial to sleep-deprive the accused before her trial and any testimony. Certainly, if you did it to the jihad lads at Guantanamo, you'd never hear the end of it from Amnesty International and every other human rights group on the planet. Miss Maxwell's family uh, has filed a complaint with the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention. For whatever's that worth, you may have seen her brother Ian on GB News a couple of hours ago. Uh, one American incarceration expert dismissing her dissatisfactions says she should look on jail as, quote, a chance to grow. Uh-huh, that's fine and dandy, except she hasn't been convicted of anything, so the growth process has been a bit premature. A bit of pub trivia for you. Who's the prosecutor in the Ghislaine Maxwell case? Why, it's Maureen Comey, who's the daughter of James Comey, the former FBI director 
who took it upon himself to absolve Hillary Clinton of all crimes relating to her emails and to launch the now discredited Russia investigation, which did a very good job of crippling the incoming Trump administration. So it's Comey's daughter who's prosecuting Jeffrey Epstein's mole. America apparently has an hereditary deep state. But this week's trial is merely emblematic of broader problems. There are many admirable things about the United States of America, but its federal justice system is not one of them. Uh, my old boss and one of the victims of U.S. justice, Conrad Black, who was on GB News with me a fortnight or so back, uh, Conrad likes to point out that the U.S. Department of Justice wins 97% of its cases without a trial. If it goes to trial, there's a 99% conviction rate. If you did that in China or North Korea or Afghanistan, Chairman Xi and Kim Jong-un and the big beards of the Taliban would be going, whoa, are you nuts? Are you guys trying to make us look ridiculous? Let's dial back the conviction rate to 94.2% or 93.7%, something that's semi-credible. But with the U.S. Department of Justice, to be accused is to be convicted. Ask the January 6th protesters who, after a year in solitary, with no trial date in sight, have been prevailed upon to plead guilty to various offenses. Uh, for years, my advice to anyone who attracts the attention of the U.S. Department of Justice has been to clean out your bank account, grab a cheap rental car, head for a remote Canadian border crossing, and prepare to spend your remaining years in a country with no extradition treaty with the United States. Right now, another subject to the Crown from Australia is facing the grim and life-shortening possibility of joining Ghislaine Maxwell in the federal penitentiary. The U.S. money-no-object big security state has spent the last two and a half years seeking to extradite Julian Assange, officially for publishing the so-called WikiLeaks documents from America's so-called most secure intelligence agencies, but unofficially they're pursuing him for making them look like a bunch of chumps. He's being charged under the U.S. Espionage Act. He's not an American. He owes the American state no allegiance. He's an Australian and his allegiance lies elsewhere. Americans would be furious if some American were to be extradited to Australia for publishing Australia's secrets. In the dysfunctional toilet of American intelligence, more than four million people have a top security clearance. That's equivalent to the entire population of New Zealand. So it's no big surprise that their secrets keep walking out the door. And in fact, the same worthless Department of Justice trying to extradite Mr. Assange for leaking its secrets leaks its own secrets all the time. The FBI just last week leaked confidential attorney-client communications of a guy whose pad they'd raided to the New York Times, and the Times was happy to publish them. The aforementioned Mr. Comey was happy to leak details of that fake Trump, Trump dossier, the one about the incontinent hookers in hotel rooms. Uh, Comey was happy to leak that to the press himself. Should British judges even be entertaining the question of extradition to the corrupt U.S. justice system? Shoot me an email, gbviews at gbnews.uk or tweet us at gbnews. Gabriel Shipton is the brother of Julian Assange 
and we are very pleased to have him with us. Uh, how, how is your brother actually holding up these days, Gabriel? Because basically uh, he's now been in Belmarsh, which is no fun uh, for something, I think it's something like uh, a year and a half uh, now. How's he holding up? Well, hi, Mark. I mean, we're coming up on Julian's third Christmas uh, in Belmarsh Prison. So he'll, this, is, this will be the third Christmas that he's spent uh, inside Belmarsh Prison, which, yeah. you know, as you know, is UK's hardest prison, uh, has the most dangerous um, criminals housed there. Uh, he's, you know, as you probably expect, I mean, Julian is very, he's very strong. He's a very principled man, but... Uh, you know, this, this, these, all these attacks and these attacks on his liberty are really grinding him down. Uh, so, yeah, he's, he's in there and, and he's still going, he's still fighting. Uh, but, you know, the, the conditions are very, very oppressive. Let, let, me let me just give an example of what it might appear to be double standards by the United States government here. Uh, a Spanish court can't get the CIA to cooperate uh, on uh, a legal matter involving a Spanish outfit's eavesdropping on your brother while he was at the Ecuadorian embassy. Uh, apparently, the CIA hired some Spaniards to go into the embassy and put all kinds of bugs in so they'd get to know everything that Julian was saying and doing. Uh, the Spanish magistrate has asked the CIA for information related to that, and the CIA are just stonewalling them. So somehow, uh, the, the, uh, the English court is expected to cooperate with the United States government in the Assange case, when the United States government will not itself cooperate with foreign judges uh, when it suits them not to do so. Yeah, I, that's right. This, this alone, this, these sort of this spying, these spying revelations of, of basically the CIA operating a black site in, in the centre of London uh, would be enough alone to have the case thrown out. Uh, but you know what's happening now? What we're seeing more and more of is the US DOJ. It's it's reaching its arm into the UK now. So uh, US laws have been applied to people who live in the UK. So you've got uh, Julian Assange who is a publisher imprisoned uh, business yeah extradition at the, at the behest of the USDOJ you've got uh, this uh, this extradition treaty uh, that was rushed through in the way of 11 has now been abused by the USDOJ to sort of grab whoever they want out of out of the UK uh, at the cost of the U.S. taxpayer, the U, I mean the U.K. taxpayer, the U.K. taxpayer is actually paying uh, paying the U.S. lawyers in Julian's case. So there's this um, that's outrageous. totally un yeah, it's totally uh, lopsided extradition treaty. And when the U.K. wants to extradite someone, say, uh, you know, in relation to the death of Harry Dunn and Sekulis, uh, an, mm. an American. Uh, the Americans refuse. So there's this totally lopsided, right. uh, lopsided treaty that has been exploited by the, the US DOJ, which you uh, so kindly described earlier. 
Yeah, well, I regard, I regard them as a completely uh, corrupt institution in this case. And, and as I said, those, those statistics about the odds you're up against when you're in a federal courthouse in the United States, are you basically concerned that if a, the judge goes along with this and your brother winds up on a plane from Heathrow to Washington, that that's a one-way ticket and he's not going to be coming back? Yeah, well, that's why, I mean, Julian's extradition was rejected uh, on January 4th. He won his case. The magistrate found that uh, sentence for Julian. Um, and she even cited uh, Epstein's case, uh, you know, how he was, um, you know, Epstein was allowed uh, to commit suicide yeah. in prison. So uh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a polite way of putting it, yeah. That's what we're afraid of. Uh, and there have you know, been other... There have been other cases, too, where they have failed to protect prisoners in, in their custody. Uh, this is, as you say, a lot of this uh, super favorable extradition arrangements were, were, came up in the wake of 9-11 and were intent, the idea of them was that if there was some terrorist guy on the other side of the planet, you'd be able to extradite him and uh, put him in an American prison. But it actually seems to be being used for all kinds of other purposes. Do you actually think that any uh, British or Commonwealth uh, judge or anybody in the EU should be extraditing to this dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt pseudo-justice system? No, not at all. I mean, I think, I think what, what British lawmakers need to, need to really review this extradition treaty and, and uh, you know, make it more balanced and fair because the, the, the US DOJ can, or any, any accusations that it makes can't be, can't be analyzed in a British court. So it, it can make the most outlandish allegations and request an extradition, and those and those allegations cannot be cannot be argued in the courts in Britain or, or wherever these extradition treaties exist. So I, th I think they need to be reviewed and and updated, uh, you know, so the, so that uh, these sorts of things don't keep happening to to, to UK citizens or Europe or Europeans. Let me just ask you one final uh, question on, on this, Gabriel. Are you disappointed uh, by the lack of support you've, uh, your brother has received, particularly from the American media? The American media uh, give themselves Pulitzer Prizes for publishing uh, materials leaked from the United States government. But in this case, uh, they seem to be sitting by silently and seem to be prepared to set an awful precedent in, in law in which a non-American publisher can go to jail for the rest of his life uh, for being the recipient, recipient of leaked materials that he chooses to publish. Yeah, I mean, look, they can always, they can always do more. The American media uh, are, are very powerful and uh, it's really their... Uh, their rights that are that are uh, at stake here. You know their their freedom, their freedom of speech, mm. their First Amendment rights. So they need to really speak up for Julian. Uh, otherwise, you know their rights will be taken away as well. Um, so that's that's what we sort of spend a lot of time doing is 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 trying to convince the media to stand up for their own rights, uh, which seems seems uh, yeah. you know a funny situation, but um, that's what we have to do. 
Well, uh, well, that's very well said there, Gabriel. My, my own view is that this case is a complete crock. Uh, your brother, whatever one feels about WikiLeaks, your brother has basically lost the last decade of his life uh, while the United States uh, tries to get him for their own stupidity and incompetence. And I hope this comes to an end the right way uh, very, very soon. So we shall pay close attention to this case and we shall stay on it. Gabriel, thank you very much uh, for joining us from Australia. Julian Assange is a citizen of Australia. And as I said, he knows no allegiance uh, to the United States government. Coming up, uh, your reactions to our top stories, plus from the ashes of Notre Dame arises a shallow, hollow husk of a cathedral for a post-Christian France. Is that the plan? And Elizabeth Mute joins me from Paris. All that straight ahead on Farage. Welcome back to Farage. Let's hear what you have to say. Philip says on uh, the question of whether anyone in Britain or the Commonwealth or the EU should be extradited to America? Philip says, simple answer, no. I have tasted American justice. The district attorney said in America, it's not win justice, it's just win. And at the federal level, they do that on a completely incredible and unconvincing and indeed what ought to be a totally embarrassing scale. Rax says, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell is never going to have a fair trial. Atrocious. Thank you for covering this and highlighting the many, many issues with the American, quote, justice, unquote, system. Uh, another viewer says, uh, Mark Stein, uh, that would be me, sums up the American justice system in five minutes, corrupt to the core. I should say full disclosure. I've been in a civil trial in the District of Columbia, just a civil case, for 10 years now. Uh, the District of Columbia in particular is where justice goes to die. Lily says it's a disgrace. They are a corrupt institution. And William uh, on uh, via GB View says, congrats to Mark for airing this injustice. No other media will give it the light of day. You know, the test of these things is when their defendants that you don't like. I think Prince Andrew uh, is a complete nitwit. I thought he was completely idiotic uh, to give that interview where he was going on about pizza restaurants in Woking and the mysterious non-sweating disease he uh, picked up while in the Falkland Islands. But the idea that uh, he should uh, submit himself to FBI interrogation when they show no sign, no sign at all, of uh, calling in Bill Clinton, uh, who was a frequent flyer uh, with uh, God knows how many premium air miles on Jeffrey Epstein's Lolita Express, is completely ridiculous. Are you cowering uh, before the mighty Omicron variant? Uh, when I was here on Friday, Omicron was only in Belgium. Now he's here in the UK as easily as if he were a Syrian refugee pretending to be an Afghan refugee. Here's Health Secretary Sajid Javid uh, speaking earlier in the House of Commons. First, measures at the border to slow the incursion of the variant from abroad. On Saturday, in line with the updated advice from the UK Health Security Agency, we acted quickly to add four other countries to the travel red list. Angola, Mozambique, Malawi and Zambia. This means that anyone who's not a UK or Irish national or resident
who has been in any of these countries over the previous 10 days will be refused entry, and those who are allowed entry must isolate in a government-approved facility for 10 days. Beyond this red list, we are also going further to put in place a proportionate testing regime for arrivals from across the world. So we will require anyone who enters the UK to take a PCR test by the end of their second day after they arrive, and to self-isolate until they receive a negative result. That's uh, Sajid Javid in the House of Commons. Pay no attention to it, because if you just take a dinghy and land at Folkestone or Dungeness, none of that applies. Uh, Dr. David Strain of the University of Exeter joins us now. Uh, what do you make of these, this reaction to the new variant? We're heading for the third year of COVID land. And uh, yet we're still trying the same moves we were trying in March 2020. What do you make of this? It, it's an interesting um, take that he's had on this. So the, the Omicron variants obviously arrived in Botswana through South Africa. And it's already pretty much widespread across the whole of Europe. Um, and we're taking these rather extreme steps without having a full handle on what is different about the Omicron variant in the way it presents. We know that it's got a tremendously different genome. So um, whereas the Delta variant had six mutations on it that allowed it to spread and caused a very slight increase in disease, this has got 32 mutations on that spike protein. So that mm. is clearly allowing it to spread. There's no doubt about that. Um, however, if you speak to any of the South African doctors, they are reporting that the disease associated with this is actually a more mild disease than we saw from the original COVID. And actually, indeed, that's the natural history of most viruses. It's not in a virus's right. best interest to kill its host. It wants the host to survive and spread it widely. So um, it's very interesting that it takes such dramatic steps here when previously they've had such a softly, softly approach. Well, what, what, what is interesting, as you said, is that the doctors dealing with this in South Africa report that the effects are mild, that you, you feel uh, heavy-limbed and tired for a couple of days, which is actually the reaction that a lot of people get to the vaccine. So, in other words, it doesn't seem to be doing anything more dangerous to them than what a vaccine does. You've, um, you're, you're a specialist. You've dealt with people, particularly in the realm of diabetes, which is a, a terrible underlying condition to have if you happen to get the COVID, and with people who've had strokes and have under, other underlying conditions. Do you think we might have been better, instead of doing yet again this universal one-size-fits-all thing, actually trying trying to protect those uh, most at risk and allowing normal everyday life to continue for everybody else. Yeah, so when we first introduced the vaccine program, we chose the most at risk, those with diabetes, those with heart disease, um, the, the elderly, the mm. vulnerable, to get the vaccine and get the boosters and going forward. Now we appear to have a one-size-fits-all, and we are seeing a tremendous disparity in people's response to the vaccine. So, for example, I'm still seeing people that are double vaccinated or even triple vaccinated are coming in with a, a minimal immune response. We're also seeing other people in their 20s right. and 30s that have got a tremendous immune response. And maybe the time's right now to start 
testing people to find out, have you responded? Do you have those antibodies? And offering additional vaccines to those who don't have the antibodies, whilst those who've still got a really good antibody response, leaving them as they are. It's time to start working on a, an individualized approach and giving those most at risk the extra and leaving the rest who've got a good response to get on with their lives. That, uh, that makes too much sense, uh, Dr. Strain. Uh, the uh, world's prime ministers and presidents seem to find it easier uh, just to shut down airports and all the rest of it and introduce lockdown 7.3 or whatever we're up to uh, by now. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Strain. Time for our What the Farage story today. At the start of Holy Week, two and a half years ago, the spar of the Cathedral of uh, Notre Dame de Paris burned and toppled somewhat curiously, you might think, even as the fire still raged. The authorities pronounced it an accident, notwithstanding a spate of church attacks throughout France in the months beforehand. God's kingdom of heaven is not formally a wholly owned subsidiary of the French state, but God's churches since 1905 have been the property of the government. So whatever arises in the ashes of the old cathedral is ultimately the choice of Monsieur Macron and his pals. They can't really do much to the exterior because millions of people pass by every day and however godless they might be, they like their heritage sites to look venerable and time-worn. The inside, however, is another matter and the Daily Telegraph reports that plans for the interior include replacing confessional boxes altars and classical sculptures with ooh, modern art murals and state-of-the-art sound and light effects to create, quote, emotional spaces for visitors. There will be a discovery trail with an emphasis on Africa and Asia, except for the last stage of the trail, which will focus on climate change. Don't worry, there'll still be just an eensy-weensy-teensy little bit of religion in there. Bible quotations will be projected onto chapel walls in various languages. No Latin, but there will be Mandarin Chinese. So Chairman Xi will feel right at home when he takes over. The Doyen of French correspondents, Anne-Elizabeth Moutet, joins us from Paris now. Anne-Elizabeth, this seems almost too obvious, a set of clichés uh, to believe. Can it really be true that the finest minds in Paris are preparing to do this uh, to the Cathedral of Notre Dame? Well, they are projecting to do this to the Cathedral of Notre Dame, and I have even sort of more extraordinary news for you, uh, because this is the idea of some bright minds at the Archbishopry of Paris who believe that the only way to uh, make people interested in Catholicism is to dumbing down, so to speak, and it's Monseigneur Aupetit, uh, the Archbishop of Paris, who's apparently uh, uh, at the head of a team who, who, who decided that this would be a good thing. In other words, uh, instead of what has been uh, the, the traces and the art and, and the experience of 800 years of Catholicism at Notre Dame de Paris is not easy enough for people who visit to experience and they've got to get explanations and essentially it's Catholicism for, uh, you know, um, it's, it's for, for everyone. It's, it's very strange and it's getting a bit of pushback and on the 9th of December, there's a, uh, a meeting of the Commission Nationale du Patrimoine, which is the National Heritage Commission yeah. in Paris, because the city of Paris and the, uh, the state has got a, a, a voice on this. 
and they're beginning to get pushback, especially on Twitter, uh, about this, saying this is one more example of the ongoing sort of uh, uh, destruction of what used to be the symbols of, of, of eternal France, if you, if you will. How much faith is, is left in France? Uh, in the south of the country, you have the most beautiful medieval churches. And I notice every time I'm there, you know, a few years back, they used to hold a mass in that beautiful medieval church once every three weeks. Then it becomes once every five weeks. Then it becomes once every seven weeks. And they're sharing a priest with more and more parishes. But if you can't and I understand in a small village that can be difficult in a land that's losing its faith. But when you think about a great cathedral in the center of national life, if, it, if, if as you say, the men who run the church don't understand the profundity of their own faith, uh, why would they expect uh, anybody else to go along with it? Uh, I'm, I'm entirely with you. Uh, it is very true that, first of all, there aren't that many priests. I mean, there are vocations, and you have new priests, and you have new seminaries, uh, uh, mm. and, and there are some organizations that actually um, are revivifying the, the seminaries in, in provincial France. But still, it is true that you've got priests who have several churches in, um, uh, to take care of, if only because people are also leaving those villages. It's not just that they're leaving the churches, it's that young people go and find work where there is work. So that's part of the general problem. But if you go to Notre Dame on a Sunday morning, there will be mass and the mass is well attended. And if you go to other churches in Paris, mm. there is mass and the mass is well attended. And it's, it's already, I mean, it's the mass post Vatican II uh, essentially because there's a sort of political battle that since Vatican II has been fought uh, between uh, traditional Catholic, traditionalist Catholics and, and those who believe that modernizing things is going to bring more people in the churches. I'm not going to take sides here, but I do notice that in traditional church, <laughs> traditionalist churches, you actually find more people regularly at Mass than in the others. But all the same, especially with the splendor of a place like Notre Dame, with the statues and the stained glass, and, and the paintings and everything that has been added over the centuries to make this church what it is, including the 19th century restoration that, you know, uh, instant experts mm. uh, during the fire started telling us was a bad restoration. It was a wonderful restoration. And all of this was right, motivated absolutely. by faith. Yep, absolutely. And uh, you're, you're quite right there, Anne Elizabeth. And there is uh, no market. Uh, as many of the fire-breathing mullers could tell you, there is no market for a faith that has no faith in itself. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Joyeux Noël, ou uh, joyeux avant, if I'm getting a little uh, ahead of myself. Uh, and uh, we're glad to have Anne Elizabeth uh, speaking to us from Paris. Next, uh, it's Talking Pints with the Peter Pan of Pop, Peter Noon from Herman's Hermits. Don't go away. No Farage to Barrage tonight, but you can stump the Stein. Give it your best shot. GB Views at gbnews.uk. Talking Pints is being conducted virtually, so we're not in the Rose and Crown. We're in the snug of the old Fox and Zoom call. Nevertheless, it's a delight to welcome to GB News a prodigious hitmaker. 
Peter Noon of Herman's Hermits as his Something is Happening. I'm into something good. I'm Henry VIII, I am. If Peter is ever in your neck of the woods, don't miss him because he's hilarious on stage. If you don't like the songs, it's not a problem because you can take out all the music and what's left is a brilliant comedy act. Anyway, I have my pint, so uh, let's see what Peter Noon is uh, drinking for his uh, tipple out in California. Are you there, Peter? Oh, I'm here. How are you, you doing? I've got to my... drink. I've got a pint oh, of milk. Oh, my word. Uh, oh, my. That's, uh, I think that's what the British Milk Marketing Board used to call a pinter. Uh, what, you, you, you prefer milk as your, uh, as your uh, tipple round this time oh, of day, me. do you? Well, you know, well, that, I, now I I'm can't. A... Yeah, carry carry on, Peter. Half of you, say, son. By the way, Peter. Uh, uh, Peter, you now you'll know this because you know a lot of pop music. There was there was a group who had a song hit in the 1960s about uh, leaving a note for the milkman because the guy's love had gone away, so he didn't need any milk today. I can't remember for the life of me who sang it. Do you know who sang it? It was this great group, my favourite group called Herman and the Hermits, and it was no milk today, my love. Yeah, do the do the next couple of lines as well. Brilliant, Peter. It did. Oh, it, it was that, a number. It was that couplet. The bottle, the the bottle stands forlorn, a symbol of the dawn, and that was written by Graham Gouldman, a great songwriter, and it's one of the greatest couplets in the history of British uh, songwriting. Now you were barely out of short trousers when you had that hit did you actually know the meaning of the word forlorn here's a clip of peter noon if you saw him with the bottle of milk there here he is at the time of no milk today my love has gone away the bottle stands forlorn a symbol of the dawn here's a picture of peter in a milk factory in the netherlands let's see if we can put this up yeah there he is that's somewhere in the low countries and to celebrate, I think he was getting a gold record from the Netherlands music business for selling however many copies it is of um, uh, of, uh, of of No Milk today. Uh, that's a, that's a great song, Peter. You have one of the best attitudes, I would say, uh, towards pop stardom because when you when you go on stage, you're having a grand old time. You're having fun. And you're not taking it too seriously. So you're not like all the... There's, there's guys who got to number 27 in 1958 and they don't understand why it never happened again and they're all kind of consumed with bitterness about it. But you just have a grand old time and roll with it. I'll tell you what, though. I love um, Peter's great song. This was a fabulous song. Big hit in the late 60s. And then the 70s, uh, I think it was the Carpenters did a version of it that has absolutely nothing uh, compared uh, to this, but this is this is one of my favourite of Peter's big hits, and here he is with me a couple of years ago. So let's just have a look at this clip. Okay, let's get so it. Live with There's Billy. a kind of hush all over the world tonight. All over the world, you can hear the sounds of lovers in love. You know what I mean? Just
the two of us and nobody else inside there's nobody else and i'm feeling good holding you tight so listen very carefully That's a fabulous, uh, that's a fabulous uh, song, and it, I never tire of hearing that. Peter is back with us, and I hope this, uh, this works this time. You've got a, you've got a terrific, uh, relaxed, uh, I've never seen anyone like this. You know, when I've toured around different parts of the world, America and Australia and places, you often arrive uh, the night before greatest hits of the 50s or some rock uh, act from the 70s and they all sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not good uh, but you just you just kind of roll on and enjoy it and you wear the same clothes and you evoke the same happy spirit that you did when you had these hits first time round how, how do you how do you do that you know I I kind of love the song so much that I'm, I'm just happy to perform them as often as I can I should say by the way at this time of year Peter is about the only guy I know who doesn't have a uh, Christmas album. You know, if I go through my LP collection, you've got the Bing Crosby Christmas album, you've got the Mariah Carey Christmas album, you've got the Pretty Patel Christmas album, but I have never seen a Peter Noon Christmas album, and he does a beautiful version of Oh Holy Night, which has got more religious faith in it than anything they're planning for the new cathedral uh, to, to Notre Dame. I must say, uh, one thing we didn't get on to is, they, uh, is his big hit, Something Is Happening. And it started happening when you walked by, and uh, unfortunately, it is time to say bye to uh, dear old Peter Dude. We will try and get him back on a, a better, a better connection. Instead, we shall do a slightly early version of "Time to Barrage the Farage." Uh, time for Stump the Stein, no Barrage the Farage. Uh, this one says, Mark, did you know that Omicron is an anagram for moronic? Yeah, they're not even trying now, are they? The next one uh, will be an anagram of if you fall for this, you'll fall for anything. Obviously, the big story with these, because they're running out of letters of the Greek alphabet, and they passed over new, N-U, because they said if you started referring to the new variant, uh, it, people would think it was the new N-E-W variant. So that's why they didn't want to call it the new variant. Uh, otherwise, you'd have the makings of some Abbott and Costello who's on first type comedy sketch. Uh, and then the next letter was G as X-I, she as in Chairman G of uh, the Chinese Communist Party, and they didn't want to call it that because they said it was a common name and people called Xi might be embarrassed if they thought it was a Xi variant. In fact, everything since this thing came out of the Wuhan uh, Institute of Virology, whatever it was, two years ago, has been a Chairman Xi variant. So they're all Xi variants. So we've new, now moved on to Omicron, and they tell us that when we're getting beyond Omicron, 
uh, when we've run out of Greek letters, they're going to use the name of constellations. So we will be literally onto the Andromeda strain. That's how it goes in COVID land without end. John says, is the power of the U.S. declining? Oh, don't believe that for a moment. Don't believe that. Just, just because they lose, they take 20 years to lose to goat herds with fertilizer in Afghanistan just because they can't even take out the stuff, all the bazillions of dollars they've spent on hardware, they can't take out. So they turn the Taliban into the eighth, ninth most powerful army on the face of the earth just because uh, they owe $30 trillion in federal government uh, debt, which is more money than anybody has owed to anybody ever and is certainly more money than anybody has ever owed to anybody ever. Uh, there's never been anybody in human history who has had to pay $30 trillion back just to get back to the stage of being totally broken, having nothing. Uh, just because uh, the aforementioned uh, Chairman Xi is apparently being gifted with uh, Entebbe International Airport in Uganda because Uganda has defaulted on its debt to China. Uh, by the way, if you're planning a trip to the United States, don't worry, when America defaults uh, on its debt, uh, they're not gonna, the Chinese aren't going to want to dump like... Uh, JFK or LAX or any of those uh, American airports. So you're reasonably, uh, you're reasonably safe. Of course, the power of the U.S. is declining. Uh, basically, the United States decided to outsource its entire manufacturing to a communist dictatorship. So they enabled Chairman Xi to come up with the only economically viable form of communism. That was the great defect, as uh, the chaps in 1917 could tell you. They're very good at the totalitarian dictatorship side of communism, uh, but they weren't so flush at keeping the communist regime in sufficient liquidity. Uh, the American Chamber of Commerce basically took care of that, turned uh, everything in America is made in China, uh, and so the power of the U.S., is certainly declining. And if China isn't the world's leading economic power already, um, it, uh, it, it will be in the next year or two. By the way, the Chinese look on this. They don't differentiate between the English and the British Empire and the Americans. They, or the Europeans, or the uh, French and the Spaniards and the Portuguese. They think there's been half a millennium of uh, unnatural Euro-American global dominance and the world is simply returning to its natural order with China as number one. That is a fascinating question. It's the, great, it's the, big, it's the big theme of our time that America has surrendered global dominance and in the fat-headed political conversation that goes on in the United States between the radical left and the uh, and the pom-pom girls on the American right waving their constitutions about. They're not even talking about... I, I, I said to President Trump that he should have made his campaign slogan. I suggested to the Trump campaign that it should be make America number one again. Uh, and uh, nobody took me up on it. Mark asks, if the Democrats win the next election... Could there be a civil war? There's going to be civil war everywhere. Claremont Review of Books, I just saw, I meant to mention this to Anne Elizabeth Moutet, says France on the verge of, of, uh, of civil war. There's predictions of civil war everywhere. Um, I don't know whether there'll be a civil war. I said rather flippily that I used to worry 
that uh, that there would be that in a, I used to worry in America that there would be a civil war, and now I'm worried that there won't be. Um, but I. I don't know whether there will be a civil war. That's a grim question. How many boat people, asks one viewer, are isolated, tested and vaccinated on watery landing in the UK? Answer is a big fat zero. Uh, and finally, Peter says, why can't they just restore the wonderful masterpiece of Notre Dame? Because that would be too obvious. And these people want to make their own mark on that glorious site. That is going to do it for tonight.